Well, I feel like I should start by apologizing for not having a more interesting accent, <laughs> as we've kind of grown accustomed to that kind of thing around here. I feel so plain. Um, but uh, before I get into the sermon, uh, my name is Chad, for those of you who are new, and I'm on staff here at Apex. <clears throat> and um, I have a quick announcement before I get into the sermon. Um, on Commitment Sunday, on the 29th, as you know, Mike was talking about, um, there are patterns in Scripture where something significant will happen and God's people will celebrate through a feast. And so Commitment Sunday is something that we want to mark and we want it to be a day that we all remember. So we're inviting everyone to a tailgate party in our parking lot after the 10 o'clock service. So bring food and drinks to share. Maybe bring some yard games like cornhole or something. We'll have uh, some inflatable, like bouncy house things for the kids and some snow cones. It's just a time for us to get together to celebrate uh, what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. So we, uh, we would love to invite you to that. Well, um, last month in late August marked 12 years that I've been on staff here at Apex. And even after 12 years, I still come to the office sometimes and I shake my head thinking, what am I even doing here? And what I mean by that is for the longest time, <clears throat> the idea of ministry or working at a church was nowhere on my radar. You know, I kind of grew up a bit allergic to some of the cultural and organizational aspects of the church. And yet here I am, it, it, this kind of just sort of happened and it's a very unexpected thing for my life. And I'm sure all of us have these unexpected things in our lives, some of them positive, some of them not so much. But the unexpected can have different effects as they greet our lives. Uh, sometimes the unexpected can humble us. It reminds us that maybe we don't understand the world that we live in as much as we thought that we did. And so we go into a situation perhaps maybe overly confident. And when that stock that you invested so much in doesn't turn out to be a sure thing, it's humbling. Or on the other end of it, we can sometimes experience anxiety and not so much anxiety about things that are currently happening, but sometimes we experience based on what we think will happen. And when this catastrophic thing that you anticipate doesn't actually happen, you feel a little silly for getting so worked up about it. So it's humbling. The unexpected shows us that we don't know everything. Surprise. The unexpected can also inspire us. It can give us hope and make us believe that what we once thought was impossible has somehow become possible. I honestly think that that's why so many of us like sports. Because if sports were predictable, I mean, what's the point in watching them? But we watch to be surprised, and that's why we root for the underdogs. We want to see things that we never expected to see or things we haven't seen before. I'm sure many of us will remember the 2014 Ohio State football season, where at the end of the season, they had to put in not their second, but their third-string quarterback, a guy by the name of Cardell Jones. Now, uh, I originally heard a talk by Coach Urban Meyer describing Cardell Jones, and he said, Cardell wasn't a bad guy, but he was a bit of a knucklehead. 
And so Cardell had to lead Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship against Wisconsin, who at the time had a very good defense, like the number two defense in the country. And I don't know if any of this football lingo is making sense to you, but usually when you put a third-string quarterback up against the number two defense in the country, usually doesn't go too well for the quarterback. His inexperience leaves him vulnerable to make mistakes and to get confused. He's not quite used to the speed of the game at that level. And so Ohio State went into this game as an underdog. But virtually no one predicted that they would win the game 59 to nothing like they did. And this victory was so impressive that the committee to decide who would go to the first ever college football playoffs invited Ohio State to come play the number one team in the country, Alabama. Alabama is basically the New England Patriots of college football. They win every year and everybody hates them. And no one gave Ohio State a chance to win this game. They went in as significant underdogs and yet they came out on top capped off by an 85-yard touchdown run by Ezekiel Elliott, who I hear isn't exactly strapped for cash in the NFL these days. But from there, Ohio State now gets to go on to play in the national championship game against Oregon, whose quarterback had won the Heisman Trophy. That means he was the best player in college football. So think about this with me. You have one team's quarterback who's the best, team, best player in college football, and you have another team who's using their third-string quarterback. Who are you putting your money on? I mean, not that you're a betting crowd, but, but I mean, how does this usually turn out? Ohio State wins the game by 22 points. It was completely unexpected, and, and for those of us who are fans, it's, it's, yeah, it's special that our team won, but it's extra special in the manner in which they won, overcoming these odds, Embracing that underdog identity and going for it. And I remember the commentator saying that high school coaches and youth football coaches for years are going to remember the name Cardell Jones and they'll, they'll talk to their second and third string bench players about Cardell Jones, reminding them, don't slack off in practice just because you don't expect to get in the game because you never know what can happen. And when that time comes, then what will you do? So the unexpected can humble us, it can inspire us, it could also rearrange the way that we see the world. It can turn our entire worldview upside down. This is why theologians refer to the kingdom of God as the upside down kingdom. The, what, what the kingdom of God values and what it considers power is uh, counterintuitive to what the world values and calls power. Well, to describe the kingdom of God within the biblical story, it's that God creates a good world and he in, intends to create this world, uh, to um, rule this world that he has ordered through creatures who bear his image and likeness, human beings. Humans were made to partner with God in, in creating this environment that is beautiful and that flourishes. And so we were made to represent God's rule. However, eventually humanity rejects this call and they reject this vocation. That's what's underneath the forbidden tree, fruit, and talking snake thing. They rejected this vocation. And so as a result, the, our, the world that was once full of order has become chaotic and, and full of sin and death. And so we have, the question is asked, will God abandon and forsake this 
plan, this vision, this project of ruling his world through his image bearers? No, he hasn't abandoned that. And that's what, really what the Bible is all about. The Bible is about the renewal and the recovery of that vision. The Bible is not about telling me how my soul can go to heaven in this disembodied existence where no feet nor wings could climb, beyond the sky where planets roll, where the angels point my way. That's, that's more related to Plato's philosophy than it is to the Bible's story. The Bible story is about the renewal of creation, heaven and earth coming together, and God ruling over creation through his resurrected, redeemed, glorified image bearers. And so God pushes this story forward by establishing a relationship with a man named Abraham and his wife Sarah. And their family grows and becomes the nation of Israel who God commissions as a kingdom of priests to represent him before the nations. But of course, like the Adam and Eve story from Genesis, they too reject this vocation by worshiping the gods of the other nations. And so as a result, they were oppressed and ruled by empires such as Babylon and Persia and Greece. And at the first century AD, Rome. So we're left with this question once again, will God abandon his plans for his kingdom to come on earth and for him to rule through his image bearers? No, God had not given up that plan. And much of our Old Testament is writings from the prophets who came from God calling out Israel for the, uh, their sin and reassuring them that no, your God reigns. The kingdom of God is coming in fullness and it'll come through a Messiah an anointed one, a king to rule over Israel and over all of creation and set all things right once again. And that Messiah would come through the line of King David, one of Israel's first kings. So perhaps Israel concluded like, okay, well, Messiah comes through the line of David and David was a warrior king. So maybe Messiah is going to come and punch the Romans in the nose and get them out of our land so that we can be liberated. But then comes Jesus and he gives these strong indications that he himself is this Messiah. And yet, he announces and displays this kingdom of God in very unexpected ways. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. What king talks like that? Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The last shall be first and the first last. If any of you want to be the greatest, he must become the servant of all. These things don't really make sense in our world, do they? But then Jesus goes and he collects a bit of this like entourage of people who follow him around. These 12 leaders who help him to uh, finish his mission and complete his mission. But... Most kings, I imagine, would get people who are very skilled and, and people who could get him in the right rooms where he could have influence. But Jesus picks fishermen, tax collectors who are working for Rome, zealots who are fighting against Rome. How's this family going to get along? But then Jesus goes and he, he performs these miracles, these signs of the kingdom. He gives sight to the blind, he heals the sick, he raises the dead. But then he tells these people, don't tell anyone. 
What king is against good publicity? It's a very unexpected and upside down way of doing things. And so today, we will continue in our series on, uh, in the book of Luke. But I'm not pushing us forward in the narrative. We're going to pause and we're going to consider this theme of the unexpected. It, it is throughout Luke, but we're going to focus specifically on, on an early chapter in the book of Luke to set us up for the rest of the unexpected that we'll see in the book of Luke. We are talking about the unexpected origins of the kingdom's Messiah, or how one commentator put it, the arrival of the incarnate Son of God is a study in how God did it and how we would have done it. There's a big difference in how God did it and how we would have done it. So the big idea today is just about God doing, uh, using unexpected people and unexpected circumstances. We began in the first week talking about a man named Zechariah. He was a priest, but he was a bit of an old man, and he and his wife Elizabeth were up there in years, and they didn't have any children, which was devastating in this culture, where children were everything. But one day, the angel Gabriel came to him while he was serving in the temple and said, good news, your prayers have been answered. You're going to have a son. Name him John. He's going to prepare the people for the Lord. And Zechariah says, well, I'm not too sure, I'm sure about this. I'm kind of old. And Gabriel says to him, you can be sure of it. It's happening. And because you didn't believe, you're going to be unable to speak until this happens. Gabriel goes from there to visit Elizabeth's younger cousin, Mary, where she lives in a small town called Nazareth. And he says to her, hey, good news, Mary. You are favored of the Lord. You are going to have a son. He's going to be the son of the Most High. Name him Jesus, or in the Hebrew, Yeshua. It means the Lord is salvation. He will rule on the throne of his father David forever. And well, Mary says, well, how can I know this? I mean, how, how can this be? I, I'm a virgin. And Gabriel says, this will be of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Almighty will overshadow you. And so, we have these parallel accounts of an angel announcing this child of destined for greatness and people having questions about it. But Mike explained that Zechariah's question was due to skepticism, whereas Mary's was curiosity. So in response to this announcement, or as a result of this announcement, Zechariah was humbled, Mary was inspired. And of course, this story is probably a bit familiar, as well as the story we'll read today in Luke chapter 2. But I hope that familiarity doesn't breed contempt. Um, and the reason I say that is because we often hear of people going to department stores October, November, and wanting to pull their hair out when they hear, you know, Jingle Bell Rock. You know, it's too soon for Christmas music, right? Anyone experienced you go into department stores, it's too soon for Christmas music? It's kind of a thing, right? Well, I hope we don't have that feeling today because Luke didn't intend for us to read this passage only at Christmas time. And there is a theme here of the unexpected that is going to carry us, uh, and we'll see it throughout the rest of the book of Luke. So today is not about Christmas came early. It's, you know, it's about seeing how God works. So uh, getting to our passage, we... Um, Actually, before I get to that passage, let's make some observations again about Zechariah and Mary. Um, Zechariah and Elizabeth were, of course, 
these unexpected people to be parents because after all, you don't see too many elderly people who have infants and toddlers who are their biological children. And they became the parents of John the Baptist. But it's not like God hasn't done this before. He did this back in Genesis with Abraham and Sarah, right? And this is the beginning of the nation of Israel. It's almost as if God is giving a hint that I'm about to do something so great and so significant, it's going to be similar to the beginnings of the nation of Israel. And of course, Mary herself is unexpected for a number of reasons. If, if it were up to us to plan the arrival of the king of the world, I imagine we would expect the, the parents of the king of the world to be people of high status and influence and nobility. But Mary was a simple peasant girl in a backwater Roman province. But of course, Mary was also unexpected because of the, I don't know, the whole virgin thing, right? You know, you know of, of 7 billion people who live on earth today and of all the billions who have lived throughout history, we know of this kind of thing happening, I don't know, once. It's a little unexpected. But I think it's unexpected not just for like the, because it you know, offends our modern scientific sensibilities, it's unexpected because we know about human nature and we know about how this kind of thing would have been perceived and the assumptions that would have been made. You know, people in Mary's life know that, okay, Mary and Joseph are betrothed. They're not married yet, but it's going to become very apparent very soon that she is with child. And an unwed woman with child in this culture was not looked upon with favor. So imagine those conversations. And I almost wonder if Mary, if Mary was ever forced to defend herself saying, guys, I know what this looks like, but there was this angel. But even Joseph had his own doubts. The, go, uh, the Gospel of Matthew says that Joseph find, like, learns about her pregnancy and he seeks to divorce her quietly. He seeks to break this engagement. And according to Jewish law, he could have pressed some significant charges, but he wanted to divorce her quietly as to not put her to shame. But then an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and says, don't be afraid to marry her. This whole thing is from God. But not everyone had the benefit of a dream. So again, we can imagine the assumptions people were making about Mary and the rumors that were going around. We have a hint of one such rumor from a second century Greek philosopher named Celsus, who was an enemy and a critic of Christianity. And he claimed that Jesus was the product of an adulterous relationship between Mary and a Roman soldier named Tiberius Pantera. Apparently, Celsus had a thing for 1990s heavy metal. I like that there's three people who got that one. Um, I'm good with it. Um, but, of course, Celsus had no historical you know, reason to make this claim, no, no evidence for this. But you can imagine, though, like, it's a bit interesting and unexpected that God would put his son in such a situation where things could have been perceived the wrong way and what that could have potentially done, making him an object of ridicule. But we finally come to our passage today in Luke chapter 2, a very familiar passage. Verse 1 says, that in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place 
while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. I'm a little bit surprised that booking websites such as Priceline, Expedia, Travelocity, to my knowledge, have not capitalized on a Christmas time ad that goes something like this. If only Mary and Joseph had used Travelocity. <laughs> if only they had a reservation. It's probably better that they don't. But they didn't have a reservation. Um, and of course, we now, with our imaginations, what we do is we, we come up with these Christmas pageants and there's this heartless innkeeper. There's no room in the inn. And certainly there have been preachers throughout the centuries who have said, this Christmas, will you be like the innkeeper or will you make room for Jesus? <laughs> the great reformer Martin Luther was once preaching a Christmas Eve service and he said, the inn of Bethlehem should have been burned with brimstone. You know the subtle guy that Martin Luther was. Very, always low-key. But the thing about this is, though, and, and this is no fine point of doctrine or anything like that, but it, it might help us reimagine this story. The word in that Luke uses here could have been used for a, a variety of things. And in fact, he uses it later on in his book to describe an upper room, a guest room of a house. This is the room where the disciples had the Passover. It was described with the same word that he uses here, the upper guest room of a house. And so Joseph, it's possible that he goes to his family's house and they have extended family there and the, there's a guest room that's already packed. And look, if a woman is with child and she's about to you know, have, you know, go into labor, she probably doesn't want a bunch of people around. She needs a bit of space. Not good to have a crowded room for her. So then we imagine that they, they, they went to like a stable or a cave where animals were. But it's also possible that they just went downstairs of the house because it was common that people would keep their animals in the, in the lower floor of their house at night, thus the whole manger thing. So that's possible. But clearly, either way you look at it, they didn't have a reservation. But God did. It's clear that God had his eyes on Bethlehem for quite some time. Hundreds of years before this in the prophet Micah, it says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But it's interesting that God didn't choose a girl who already lived in Bethlehem to be the mother of his son. He chose a girl who was up in Nazareth, about 100 miles to the north. So God would have to arrange for her to go south to Bethlehem somehow. Well, what did God use? It was the, the decree of the Roman emperor who was taking a census for likely tax purposes. God used the plans of a pagan king in order to bring about his providential purposes. But we should consider why Bethlehem? 
If it were up to us to plan the arrival of the king of the world, we would imagine that he would be born in some great city of significance where there's lots of media access and where the child could grow to have political influence. Bethlehem was none of those things. It was a city probably of about a thousand people. But perhaps we should consider the uh, biblical history of Bethlehem. The first time we read about Bethlehem in the Bible is in the book of Genesis. Jacob and his family are traveling there, but on the way, his wife, Rachel, dies in child labor. Well, after that, we read about a woman named Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who traveled to Bethlehem because their husbands had died in Moab. So, so far, Bethlehem is associated with very sad people, you know, with, it's associated with tragedy and loss and weeping. But then we get a glimpse of redemption. For in Bethlehem, Ruth is able to glean in the fields of a righteous and godly man named Boaz, who eventually marries her. And the result of this union is eventually um, they have a great grandson named David. Now, David becomes the, is, is, he grows up in Bethlehem, and he is unexpectedly anointed as king, even though he was the youngest of all of Jesse's sons. So here, though, we have this city that is sometimes associated with weeping and tragedy, but also with a glimpse of redemption. And what more appropriate city could Messiah be born in? It is in the darkness where the light shines the brightest. And of course, in all likelihood, he's born in Bethlehem due to Messiah's connection with King David. But then there's the whole manger thing. You know, Mary takes her infant and has him sleep in an animal feeding trough. So all of these things, this small town of little significance, this um, less than stellar accommodations, the animal feeding trough, they all point to this, is that God goes to great lengths in order to identify with the most disadvantaged and underprivileged of humanity. Jesus, no, even though he was divine, he knew with every inch of him what it meant to be human and the suffering and the struggle that comes along with that. And to push this point a little further, we read about the type of people who God shares first this good news with. In verse 8 of chapter 2, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Once again, if it were up to us to arrange the arrival of the king of the world, I imagine the first that we would share this news with would be the king's court. People in privileged positions and high status. And maybe eventually we would get around to having people play trumpets on the roof, you know, or put off some fireworks. But I don't know that we would consider inviting shepherds to the party. And yet here, for the third time in Luke's gospel, angels come making an announcement. But they don't announce it to Herod, the king of Judea. They don't announce it to the chief priests or the elders or the scribes or any of the religious leaders. They make this announcement to ordinary blue-collar shepherds. And what this shows is that though God is the creator and the king of the universe, he is no elitist. God did not reserve this great gift and the news of it for the culturally elite. This is good news for everybody. As the angel says, good news for all the people. And what better symbol for everybody, for the everyman, for the ordinary, than shepherds? So the shepherds consider this and they say, let's go find this. Probably not too many infants lying in mangers tonight in Bethlehem, so I'm sure we can go and find this. And, and so I'm trying to imagine this, uh, this encounter between Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds. You know, they come in complete strangers. Um, knock, knock. <laughs> no, you just had a baby, but um, angels told us about this thing. I know it sounds crazy. Mary and Joseph look at each other. They look back at the shepherds and say, eh, it's not that crazy. But then the shepherds go from there rejoicing, telling everyone they know, basically becoming the first evangelist for King Jesus. But perhaps there's something else within this announcement that the angels make that may be of some interest to us. You see, there is another king from around 2,000 years ago, around the time of Jesus, who people described with certain words like Savior, Son of God. He was, he, said, he was said to have ended war and brought peace to the earth. And that his birth was described with the Greek word euangelion, which means good news, gospel. And this king was the king who Luke mentions at the beginning of chapter 2, the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus. So here we have the opportunity to compare these two kings, the king in the manger and the king in Rome. But to do that, we have to do some history. And I hope that you value that we do history here because the Bible is not just a book of spiritual truth disconnected from reality. It's, it's, you know, the Bible is very much connected to space-time history. And the Bible was not written by 21st century people to 21st century people. So we have to go to another culture, a there and then, a whole different place and time to enrich our understanding of it. So in order to do that, we have to do history. And so Caesar Augustus was born with the name Octavius, eventually Octavian. And he was born to a Roman politician 
but he became the adopted son and heir of Julius Caesar. But after the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BC, Octavian joined allies uh, such as Mark Antony, and they went to fight against the conspirators and assassins of Julius Caesar. Well, after they were successful, uh, Octavius actually got to rule a piece of the Roman Republic. But of course, when competing ambitions surfaced, he then went to war against people who were once his allies. So he went, there was this long civil war between him and Mark Antony. But finally, in 31 BC, at the Battle of Actium, I almost said the Battle of Activia in the first service. That's a yogurt for your digestion, I think. Battle of Activia, that is a battle, isn't it? Um, the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, Octavian won the battle. They won the war. Mark Antony went fleeing to the Middle East where he and his lover Cleopatra committed suicide. So now, uh, Octavius, or Octavian was now going to be the emperor of Rome. But it was supposed to work out to where the emperor and the Roman Senate were equal in power, that there were some checks and balances there. But functionally, how it worked out was everyone knew that the emperor had the true power of the state. So in 27 BC, Octavian adopts the name Caesar in homage to Julius Caesar. And the Roman Senate give him the title, which likely he had some influence and say in. They give him the title Augustus. So Augustus isn't a name as much as it is a title, just like Christ isn't a name as much as it is a title. And Augustus means the illustrious one, the venerated one, the increasing one, all within Roman religion having divine connotations. So that shows what Augustus thought of himself. But we come to see that Augustus is the type of king that we've come to expect in this world. Coming to power by trampling over people, even people who are once your friends, in order to get that position you're looking for. And he would go on to basically double the size of the Roman Empire. Do you think he used manners? May we please have your land? That's not what the kings of this world do, no. So Augustus is a type of king we've come to expect, but compare that with the king in the manger. The king who never lifted a sword. Napoleon Bonaparte is credited with a quote where he says that Alexander, Charlemagne, Caesar, and I have all founded empires. And we founded these empires upon force. But Jesus founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions would die for him. So here on this night, you have a, you, you can, you know, do the comparison. You have a king who is counting his people and thus counting his tax money. But then you have another king, the true savior, the true son of God, the true prince of peace, sleeping in an animal feeding trough. These are two very different kings. Jesus would never stand face to face with any Roman emperor, but at the climax of Luke's gospel, he would stand face to face with the emperor's representative, Pontius Pilate. And throughout the trial of Jesus, Luke is emphasizing that he is completely innocent of all the charges against him. 
But in another ironic and unexpected twist, at the cross, we have it from the lips of a Roman centurion overseeing this execution that we hear certainly this was an innocent man. But in the decades to follow, the emperors after Augustus would seek to erase followers of Christ from the earth. Well, they weren't all that successful. By the fourth century, the Roman emperor himself, a man named Constantine, was swearing allegiance to Jesus as well as much of the Roman Empire. The point here is this. The reign of Augustus is a thing of history, but the reign of Jesus endures till today and forever. There are quite a few unexpected things we read throughout Luke, but it seems that he even bookends these unexpected things. You have um, at the beginning these things we've read about today, but then you have the unexpected at the end as the enthronement of Jesus, that being his enthronement where he was given a crown of thorns, nailed to a cross. Israel's Messiah was supposed to liberate them not die at the hands of their enemies. And so imagine the, what the disciples were discussing during all of this. Like, we, we saw him walk on water. We saw him cast out demons. How can he, be, how can he rule over and, and have authority over the kingdom of darkness if he can't even have authority over the kingdom of Rome? This doesn't make any sense to us. But Jesus did warn them about all this. He told them on multiple occasions that we're going to Jerusalem and the son of man will be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and will be handed over to the Gentiles where he will be spit upon, mocked and flogged and killed. And when this all actually happened, they were completely taken off guard. They're caught off guard. But then something else happened that they really didn't expect. Even though Jesus told them that on the third day, the Son of Man would rise again from the dead. Completely unexpected to them. If they did expect it, you'd think they would be camped out outside of the tomb waiting for Sunday morning, having breakfast ready. But they had no idea that this was something that would happen. They understood resurrection was something for all of God's people at the end of history, but what they didn't expect was that in order for that to happen, one man would have to rise in the middle of history. But the other unexpected connected to this, of course, is that just as the shepherds were the first unexpected people to hear about the news of Jesus' birth, there was an unexpected group of people who were the first to hear of Jesus' resurrection. And it was a group of women. And the reason this was unexpected, because this, in this ancient patriarchal society, women were not people of high, considered to have high status. They, they weren't allowed to be witnesses in the court of law. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's how things were seen. And so for the gospel writers to write, women were the first to see the resurrected Jesus. That, that's how it happened. Because if they were fabricating it, that kind of idea would have been completely counterproductive to their efforts. Women played a really important role in the ministry of Jesus, which once again, in that culture, hugely unexpected. But little did they know that they would be the first to share the good news. They, they went and told the disciples, he's alive.
that God would use this dying and rising of Jesus to be the means by which he would deal a crushing blow to evil and death is hugely unexpected. That God himself would become human, that the word became flesh, that he would have hands that would be pierced by nails and a side that would be stabbed by a Roman spear so that he could become our substitute and our representative so he could take our sin upon himself, take it to the grave and leave it there, coming out of that alive in order to set captives free for all that to happen. No one saw that coming. Completely unexpected. And yet God did indeed become a man. And before he became a man, he became a baby in a manger. So what good is it for us to consider and observe the unexpected ways that God often works? Well, here at Apex, we feel that we are commissioned to make disciples. We are kingdom representatives who go and declare the good news of, of Jesus. And we are to do life in relationship with one another as we progress to become more and more like Jesus. But I'm guessing that in this room, there are people who have this list in their minds of reasons why God wouldn't use them or couldn't use them. And I suspect that's the case because I feel that list in my own heart as well. But some of us may think that like, I have too much baggage. My past is too heavy. I've done things that I am so ashamed about and I can't quite get over. And maybe I can get to a place where I kind of believe that God wants to forgive me and maybe put up with me, but I really don't believe that God wants me on his team and that he'll actually use me. God wouldn't use me. We all feel like we're the oddball in God's family. Perhaps there's others of us who think that, well, there's nothing, there's nothing special about me. There's, you know, I, I don't have particularly any skills or gifts. I, I'm not really good with people. I don't understand a lot about the Bible. I didn't go to seminary. I'm just so plain. God couldn't use me and my limitations. Folks, we, we, we need to understand that Salvation is not something, it's, it's not just about what you're saved to, things like adoption and union with Christ. You're saved to those things, but you're also saved for something. It's not just about what you're saved to, it's about what you're saved for, and you're saved for the life of the world. And what we read about in Scripture over and over is that God is gracious enough to work in and through the lives of people in spite of their unworthiness, in spite of their sin, in spite of their failures. He is gracious enough. But we also read that God is powerful enough to work in and through the lives of people in spite of their weaknesses and limitations. We saw that God worked through the life of Zechariah. He was gracious enough to work through Zechariah in spite of Zechariah's unbelief but he was powerful enough to work in the life of Mary in spite of her weakness and low status and humble origins. He can do the same for us today. It is not God's typical pattern that he chooses the most upright and qualified. There's no glory for him in that. 
But what God usually does is he takes people and meets them where they are and he takes them through a transformative process. He takes us, the third string quarterbacks that we are, and he forms us into starters for his kingdom purposes. So if you feel unworthy and you feel unqualified, join the club. But it's not about what you can do, it's about what God can do in and through you. If it's all right, I'd like to offer one final story and then hopefully you somehow find it encouraging. It was about two years ago, um, around this time of year, uh, I was brought into um, our, the, uh, the, an office of uh, somebody in leadership here at Apex and I was told that I would be transitioned from working with youth and you know, family ministry to working with the growing team with uh, Jason Zastro. And so uh, Jason invited me to this uh, kind of meeting of leaders, um, leaders who plan and kind of facilitate the house church training that uh, we do called um, the, the Immersions. We have an immersion coming up in October. But we have this meeting and I hear them uh, speaking about things and I'm pretty sure they're speaking English, but there's a lot of concepts in the way they're using things I wasn't quite you know, understanding. And so at the end of it, they said, so Chad, how, you know, how are you feeling? And I said, I feel like a student taking Spanish 101 and I've been dropped off in Tijuana. It was, it was a bit to you know, kind of figure out and, and catch up with what they were saying, but they said, yeah, we get it. You know, we've been going through this for two or three, three years ourselves. And so I was offered this kind of stack of books to peruse to kind of you know, get caught up. And I noticed that a lot of these books were written by a guy named Mike Breen. Well, from there, a few months later, I was invited to speak at one of these immersions, these house church trainings, and um, my topic was going to be covenant and kingdom, and a resource I was directed to to use was written by a guy named Mike Breen. Fast forward from that, that was about April of 2018 to the end of 2018, around October, November. All that we were told as a staff is that a potential preaching candidate would be visiting. You know, we weren't going to meet him. I mean, we, didn't, we weren't told uh, who, the name or anything. We just know that he was going to be here just checking us out. And a staff member um, recognized him and came and told me in the hallways that, Chad, do you know who the preaching candidate is? I said, no idea. He said, it's Mike Breen. And I, I said, I've heard of him. <laughs> but then I said, you know, he's got like, I mean, all these books he writes, this publishing he does, and he travels you know, all over the world doing conferences. He lives near the beach in South Carolina. Why does he want to come to Dayton? And so I go upstairs to you know, process some of this, and I run into you know, Jason Zastro, who I work with in the growing team, and I said, uh, I said, Jason, do you know stuff? And he kind of smirks and he says, yeah, I know stuff. He said, I actually knew before any human told me. And I said, excuse me? He said, yeah, I was praying about it one day, getting ready for work, and I heard the name Mike Breen. Now, Jason isn't the type to you know, interpret wishful thinking as the voice of God. I've known him for quite a long time. That's not his style. But none of us had any idea that Mike was looking for a job. We, I mean, we assumed he was busy doing his own thing. And so, and, and the point of this story is not to put Mike on a pedestal. That's not what we're about at all. But 
what we do know is that Apex needed a communicator to communicate the vision of Apex and to give us language for this discipleship movement that we're about. And at the same time, Mike and Sally needed a church that they could become family with. You know, and they've said to us, we've been to hundreds of churches. We don't know anyone quite like you. And so God saw a need over here and a need over here, and he brought it together. But for, for those of us who are behind the scenes, in a completely unexpected way. And so I hope you find that a bit encouraging. And my hope is that five years from now, 10 years from now, we will look back. We'll look at it, we'll look and we'll see all sorts of change in the city of Dayton and beyond through which we were, you know, with that we were a part of that change. That God worked in and through us to bring about change in the city of Dayton. And we'll think back and go like, you know, who would have ever thought that God would have used this church with all of her baggage, with the difficult journeys she's been on and her orange carpet? Like, who would have thought, who would have thought that God would use a church like that? Well, that's exactly the kind of church that God uses. I hope you find that encouraging.